All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 13. We've been slowly making our way through the Gospel. There's, again, so much in, in the Gospels. We may get to uh, all 30 verses this morning, but if we get through the first 17, I'll be very pleased. If you remember last week, we looked at, uh, in John chapter 12, the most significant part of that chapter was Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of many hundreds of years prior to that, the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27. We looked at that at great detail. And as we get into John's uh, 13th chapter here, through chapter 17, actually, is a very uh, short period of time, actually. Uh, the Lord has seen fit to give us just this, uh, this time where Jesus had his last supper, his last Passover meal, if you will, on earth. And we know that during that time of that Passover meal, he also instituted uh, communion, where we take uh, communion. We're not taking communion this morning, but it was something that had never been done before because it was, wasn't part of the Passover meal. The Passover meal was a lamb and, and bitter herbs and unleavened bread, but it had nothing to do with uh, the bread and the cup and, and, and its significance that Jesus portrayed it as we look into those hours that he was with his disciples in the upper room just hours before he would be arrested unlawfully and crucified. And so that's what we are looking at. And in fact, if you look at uh, chapter 13, uh, you remember that the Gospels are written in such a way where they could be fit into a puzzle, in a sense. If you, you were to take all Gospels, all four Gospels, and arrange them in chronological order, you would notice that in the Gospel of John, for instance, here, and I've been trying to share that with you as we've been going along to give you an idea of things that are happening between certain events, and that helps you frame chronologically what's happening. And I like to do that because sometimes those things that happen before and after certain events have a bearing on, what we're, on, on, the, on the event that's happening right at that moment. Because usually there's a cause and effect. There's a reason for these things, oftentimes. And so, between chapter 12 and chapter 13, there are approximately 27 different events in the life of Jesus that take place. Because remember, in chapter 12, we looked at the triumphal entry, which happened on, we call it Palm Sunday. It could have happened the Sunday prior. It may have even been Monday. There's some debate on whether it's Sunday or Monday. It really makes no difference. It happened, <laughs> right? And so, fast forward. So, during that time, after that, uh, the few days after that, two or three days, these 27 events occurred. And we're not going to go through them for the sake of time. But there are a number of things. But one of the last few things of, those, of that list of 27 events is Jesus begins to, um, it begins to talk about this preparation for the Passover meal. And so when we look at Luke chapter 22... What I'd like to do is to give us a context of John chapter 13. Let's just back up and open, if you would, to Luke chapter 22. 
We're just going to look at the first 16 verses of this because this gives us an idea of, of getting into this because um, there were some things that happened prior to this Passover meal that are very important for us to understand. So open with me to Luke chapter 22. And again, we're just going to look at the first 16 verses of this. And it sets the stage for what's going to happen afterwards. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And then notice verse 13, and underline this in your Bible, Then Satan entered Judas. Underline that. Surnamed Iscariot, because Iscariot was the name of the town that he was from. So Judas Iscariot, Iscariot is not his last name. That's just the town that Judas was from, because Judas was a very popular name during that time because of the great heroic efforts of Judas Maccabeus in the second century B.C., uh, throwing off the, the yoke of Rome for a season, and he was heralded as a uh, uh, a hero, and so everybody named their kid Judas until after Judas betrayed Jesus. Now nobody calls their kid Judas. <laughs> so Judas was a very popular name. So Satan entered Judas, who was numbered among the twelve, verse 4 of chapter Luke 22 there. He says, so he went his way, Judas did, and he conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. Everybody has their price, it seems, right? Hopefully none of us, but Judas certainly did. And he sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. They wanted to do this on the stealth side. So then came the day of unleavened bread, and then the Passover, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, speaking of Jerusalem, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And then you shall say to the master <clears throat> excuse me, of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? Underline that word guest room. We're going to be talking about that. It's where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And then he will show you a large furnished upper room. And there make ready. And so they went and they found it just as Jesus said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now I had you uh, underline a few things. Obviously this section that we just looked at was preparation of what was happening, the plot that was formed against Jesus and how Judas was going to betray him and how Jesus told Peter and John to prepare the Passover, go to the place, prepare it for us tonight. And they did so. <clears throat> I had you underlearn, underlearn? I had you underlearn, yes. I had, <laughs> had you underline. I had you underline the uh, word guest room for a reason, because that word in the Greek is kataluma. Kataluma. And it's, it's literally an upper room or a guest room. And um, the rooms like this during the Passover and these other feasts were rented out 
in Jerusalem at those feast times because pilgrims were coming from all over the world into Jerusalem. They had no place to stay. And so what they would do is they would go to people who have these extra rooms and they would use them for the feast or for lodging or whatever. And there was a price to be paid for that. And a lot of times it could be a very lucrative time for landowners or homeowners in Jerusalem because they would be, it would be sort of like having a timeshare on uh, you know, the Atlantic Ocean and the Hamptons. You know, you have people stay there and uh, you make money. And so the similar thing was happening here. And so Jesus tells them to go get this guest room, to prepare it. This cataluma is what it's called. And we know that Mary and Joseph, uh, they came to a similar place when, remember when they came to Bethlehem from Nazareth, they sought to lodge in an inn in one of those places and there was no room for them in the inn. And it tells us that in, in Luke's gospel, and that inn that's spoken of is the Cataluma. It's a place where they could rest, a place where they could lodge. But there was no room for them at the inn, at the Cataluma. So now they had to stay out in the place where the animals were. And that's why Jesus was laid in a feeding trough, probably made of cement, And that's where they laid him. He was born and laid in a feeding trough where animals and slobbering beasts would eat, right? Not a great thing for the king of the universe. But notice the humble beginnings, the humble things. God is not, he's not so hung up on on gold and he made gold. (laughs) I mean, how can you impress? He's not impressed. He doesn't thrill by fancy things. He doesn't need any of that. You and I require it sometimes. We would like those things. And fancy people like to have those things, but Jesus is like, no, I don't, I don't care. I don't even have a place to lay my head. I don't, I'm not worried about that. Humble king, we sang it this morning. No one like him. What a great role model for each of us, for the world to model after. Too bad we all weren't more humble like Jesus. I think that's one of the greatest hallmarks of a Christian is humility. And we're going to see Jesus portraying that, being that example in which we ought to be as well, especially in the dark world that we live in now. You know, we have so many rights, and these things are wonderful, but we have to remember that we ought to be willing to forego anything for the sake of following Jesus and laying aside whatever we need to to serve Him and to glorify Him and to serve others. So Jesus and His disciples were in this cataluma, this upper room, and they sat around what they call a triclinium. <laughs> this is a picture of a triclinium. Uh, this is a, um, it was often only, uh, it was three tables, hence the name, tri, meaning three, clinia means to recline. So there, you notice there's no chairs sitting around this, and it's hard to tell, but this thing is only just a few inches high. It's not something where you would set a chair around because that wasn't the custom of the day. In fact, guests would recline on their left side. They would recline on their left side, supporting their weight on their left elbow or their arm, and they would sit down or, or, or rest on either a pillow or some kind of carpet that they would lay down next to that, and they would eat with their right hand. That was just the way things were. They always ate with their right hand. You know why? Because when they would go to the restroom, they would use their left hand. Just being honest. All right? So it was always the right hand that they would eat with. So they would lay on their left side, 
And they would recline around this table on their left side, and they would eat, reach in the table, and pull and eat with their right hand. And when we understand this arrangement around this upper room table that they were on, it really brings things to light, especially as you begin to read the Gospels. In fact, the U-shape of this triclinium was always facing toward the entrance or facing the door that you would come into the room. It was facing that. And the reason for that is because there were, um, there were people, the very first person on the left side would always be the one who would guard that gathering, the bodyguard, if you will. And the gospel accounts tell us, and as we read the, this account tonight or today, and as we get into it further, we will see that John is actually in that place. From the gospel accounts, we can surmise that this is the location of at least four of the people. We don't know where the rest of the disciples were, but we know that that is where they're at. And it'll become clear as we, as we read John's gospel. And the placement of these people is significant because John was the bodyguard. He would be right there at the beginning. If anybody came in, he would be the first to be able to um, defend anybody if somebody came in trying to harm them. The one right to the left, or, or right to the, um, yeah, I guess depending on how you're seated from John's perspective, right to the left would be the host, the one who was hosting the Passover. And who was that? It's Jesus. He's the one who hosted this Passover. And right to his left would be the guest of honor. Yes, Judas. Judas was the guest of honor at this Passover. Jesus knowing very well that Judas was a thief, he was a liar, and Jesus already knowing the scriptures that have been foretold, Psalm 41, Psalm 108, 109, um, those prophecies of Judas that he would betray him. And yes, he is the guest of honor. Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus. Don't you find that interesting? It gives new meaning to love your enemy, doesn't it? Because if that was my enemy, the last thing I would do is put him next to me. But even Judas, God gave Judas every opportunity to turn and he wasn't fulfilling some role. This was not some play that they were playing. Judas wasn't thinking about Psalm 41 or the other Psalm, Psalm 108 or 109. I forget off the top of my head. He wasn't thinking about that at all. He was just absorbed with himself. And that's the wonderful thing about prophecy in the Bible is that God knows what's coming. We oftentimes don't understand what's coming, but God knows and he can write it with accuracy. God knew that Judas would be the one to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that, of course. But Judas was acting of his own volition. He wasn't being forced to do anything. No, his heart was, despite what the movies say, and the movies that you watch about Jesus' life, especially the, the Passion Week, don't, you know, be careful about how the movies portray Judas. They make him look like some kind of victim. Oh, poor guy, you know, look at him. He's, he's trying so hard, and then, you know, the Lord, does, you know, this happens. And No, he was a rotten, filthy thief. And people try to make Judas sound to be like the, some kind of victim. No, he was no victim. He was a scoundrel. <laughs> he was a scoundrel. And so 
Judas is the guest of honor at this last Passover. And we know that Peter is on the other side where the servant would be. The very lowest position at the table would be on the right-hand side over there. And Peter hated that. Peter, having made all these proclamations, Lord, though all may run away from you, though may, you know, everybody may desert you, but not me. I'm your number one guy. I'm your second in command. I'm your vice president. I'm going to take up the charge and something happens to you, man. I'm standing in the gap. And, and that was Peter. And we don't know exactly why he's there. The Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe the Lord put him there to teach him something about humility, about servanthood. Because Jesus said, it's not the first. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be willing to be last. It, it totally flies in the face with our modern understanding, especially our American understanding. The guy who wants to be first is first. He's the guy riding in the fancy car with the leather seats. He's the, he's the guy with the Armani suit. He's the guy who looks all suave and beautiful and gorgeous. And Jesus says, nope, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you've got to be willing to be last. And that is a good thing for us to hear today, too. Humility. In a world of pride, in a world of bravado, this message flies directly in the face of it. And yet it's the very thing that Jesus portrayed so selflessly, this humility. And so Jesus and his disciples, they were seated around this triclinium rather than the traditional table that is shown to us in Leonardo da Vinci's painting called The Last Supper. Leonardo da Vinci was a great sculptor and a great painter, but he was no theologian, and he certainly didn't understand and was not privy to the customs of the Jews in ancient Israel. And there's some problems with this painting. This is what we, you know, many people, and this is a very large painting. It's on the wall of a, 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 a convent in Milan, Italy, and it's several feet high and several feet long, this painting. But there's some problems with it. Number one, the Passover was eaten in the evening, not in the daytime. Notice through the window, there's daylight. <clears throat> they all had their sandals on. If you look closely or you look at a picture, they've all got their sandals on. They would not be sitting at a dinner table at the Last Supper with their sandals on. And we'll see that because of what we're going to look at this morning. And the Passover meal did not consist of fish and Italian dinner rolls. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Italian rolls. Right, Pastor Dave? We love Italian dinner rolls. But those are leavened. You can see how plump and beautiful they are on the table. And there's fish on the table, too, if you look. But no, there's no, there's no fish. There's no Italian dinner rolls. The table shown here is not a triclinium, which was very obvious and very... Uh, customary for that time. They didn't sit on chairs that were high above. They didn't sit on chairs. And there's no linen tablecloth that long. That's a long tablecloth. It's not there. So let's get into John chapter 13 now that we have looked at those things. So that is the setting of what we're looking at. Verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from his world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Aren't you glad that he loves us to the end? I'm so glad for that. That wherever the end is, Jesus is there with us. He's not going to leave us orphans. 
He is going to be with us to the very end. And supper being ended, verse 2, the devil, notice, having already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. If we go back and look at verse 1, we know that this hour had come. Before we, we looked at this, there was a time when his hour had not come, but clearly now it had come, this time when he would be glorified, that he would be crucified and then be glorified, resurrected on the third day, and ascend to the Father. To what? To prepare a place for us, to intercede for us on our behalf. And notice this, that he loved them who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Jesus was there right to the end with his disciples. Even after his death and resurrection and his ascension, he is still with us by the presence of his what? His Holy Spirit. Jesus is still with us by his Holy Spirit, indwelling us. Something new in the New Testament dispensation was the fact that God, he would indwell us by his Spirit. That's something that the church has that wasn't true before Jesus was born. The Spirit came on people and then left, but to have the Spirit indwelling us, that's something that the church has come to know and to understand and to have the privilege of the down payment, if you will, the earnest of our expectation until he comes to redeem our physical bodies and change us and bring us up to him to meet him in the clouds. So notice verse 2, And supper being ended, the devil having already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The supper, obviously, that is spoken is the Passover supper. This was the lamb, the bitter herbs, and the, and the unleavened bread commemorating the Passover, which we read about in Exodus 12, the night that the children left Egypt, and they sacrificed the lamb, and they put the blood of the lamb on the lentils and on the, door, on the, on the lentil and on the side posts of their door. Anyone inside would be, would be kept alive, and the firstborn of anyone, any creature, any man in all the land of Egypt who did not have, who was not inside the house where the blood was applied, the firstborn would die. And so, and then they left that evening, in the middle of the night, they left Egypt. And this Passover meal is the commemoration of that event when the death angel passed over Egypt to bring judgment upon Egypt and their firstborn. And this is the last Passover meal that Jesus would have. And notice, the devil having already put it in the heart of Judas. Having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot. See, prior to this, chronologically, we have to understand, and Luke tells us about this in his gospel in chapter 22, verse 3, that Satan had entered Judas when he had conspired with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him. So this was, you know, now we're going back in time. So Satan had already done this because it tells us in Luke, uh, going back in time here, he says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they had feared, for they feared the people. And notice what it says, Then Satan entered Judas. He entered him. He possessed him. 
And it tells us in this very chapter that Satan entered him again. You know, can you imagine? Yes, Judas, a disciple of Jesus, being possessed by the devil. The devil entered him. It tells us twice in the scriptures that he he did this. Not a demon, but the devil himself. You know, I can't get my mind around it. You know, I don't have any idea what this kind of thing is, and and I don't want to know either, to be honest with you. But most people think that when somebody is possessed by a devil, that they're going to walk around disheveled, and all of a sudden, for some reason, they're going to have this really dark countenance and, you know, kind of look like that and have this horrible face and, and, you know, know, the boogeyman kind of, you know, and maybe even have a little tail with the thing and the pitchfork and the pointy ears. You know, that's all myth. (laughs) In 2 Corinthians, what does it tell us? For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Nobody knew this. Even when Satan entered Judas, the only one who knew that was Jesus. All the disciples were like, they didn't even know why he left. As, we, as, we, as we'll look, they didn't know why he left that gathering that night. And he was going to finally betray him once and for all and lead the chief priests and the, and the, and the guards to bring and come and capture him. The other disciples were clueless. They thought to themselves that Judas was a great guy. I mean, after all, he held the bag of money for them. They all thought he was an upstanding citizen. One of them. There was nothing in the external that made them think, oh, the devil's in him. There was nothing like that. Kind of changes your attitude, doesn't it? Because I think there are people in this world that are possessed by the devil or demons. And yet you look at them and you're like, wow, they, they, don't, they dress nice. They talk nice. They're very well educated. Man, some of them are even good looking. The devil could care less about the outward package. In fact, he loves it when we focus on the outward package. Then he, he has that, even that much more way to get around us and to deceive us. When the Antichrist comes on the scene after the church is removed, he will, be, he will seem to those of the world to be the most logical. He'll seem to be sensible, intelligent, practical, spiritual, and probably a handsome devil, pun intended. And this is why the disciples didn't think anything of it. But Judas was a thief. He was a betrayer, despite what the movies say about him. Um, He is a a, a liar and a robber. It says in John 12, verse 6, that he, he didn't care for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. And Jesus knew about this. And yet he made him the guest of honor at the Passover meal. Why is that? Because Jesus loved him and gave him every opportunity. Doesn't God give us opportunities? If he really loves us the way he says he does, does he give us every opportunity to come to him? And maybe you're here this morning or watching online or listening on the radio and you're thinking to yourself, God can't save me or I'm too far gone. Hey, listen, God gave, every, God gave Judas every opportunity to come, but he would not. He would not. He shunned Christ's overtures for salvation and forgiveness. And Judas right now is in hell. 
And he will spend an eternity in hell. And many have asked the question as we read this, you know, can a believer be possessed by a demon? The answer is no. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot be possessed by a demon. You can be messed with, and I've been messed with, and you have been messed with, and we will continue to be messed with until the Lord comes for us. He can't possess you. He can't have you. But what he can do is tempt you, and he can oppress you. Only what God allows, but he cannot have you. Didn't Jesus say, if, you're, if you are his, you are in the palm of his hand. Nothing in heaven above or on earth beneath can pluck you out of my hand, Jesus said. So if that be the case, we're secure in our salvation. But we are going to be, if we're not careful, we can allow our guard to go down and we can find ourselves in a net and, and doing things and saying things that we know we ought not to. And are we finished at that point? Is Jesus going to say, you know what, you messed up too many times, I'm done with you? No. He'll say, confess your sins and be restored to me, and then move on as if that never happened. (laughs) Wow. Is your forgiveness really that wonderful? Yeah, it is. We like to kind of hang on to our sin. Even though we know we've forgiven, we've been forgiven, we like to hold on to it for a little while and beat ourselves up a little bit. And then in a couple days, we feel like now we've earned something. Maybe we've earned it. Well, let me tell you something. If if you've got to go through that to feel good about yourself again, You don't understand what happened on the cross. I mourn when I sin. Everybody does, but don't hang out there too long. You've been forgiven. And if he chooses to atone for that sin, which he has, and you confess it, then why are you still wallowing in that pool of misery? Honor what he did and say, I'm done. And move on. And if you do it again, you confess it and you ask for the gift of repentance and you get up and you move on. Don't stay wallowing in that pool. But can a believer be possessed? No, I don't believe they can. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 22, it says this, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed. He was blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw... And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? And then when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will then his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, then who do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? Satan here is the strong man. But guess what? Jesus comes because he is more powerful, and he takes over. And that's what happened with this demon-possessed man. Now, this is an unbelieving man, an unbeliever, but the Spirit of God indwells us. So is there anybody more powerful that you know of that can come and take the place? When you're king, when Jesus is on the throne of your heart, when the Spirit of God has indwelt you, is there anyone big and bad enough to take him off the hill? Don't think so. It's not going to happen. Do you believe that? 
I don't know, do you? Yes, he is. I mean, is God all-powerful? Is he more powerful than Satan? Of course he is. Satan's a created being. God is all-powerful. Because greater who is he that is in you than, than he that is in the world. He that is in you is the Spirit of God, the very Spirit of Jesus Christ. So was Judas a believer? No, he wasn't a believer. That's why he was able to be possessed by Satan himself. Satan himself. Can you imagine? I can't even, I, can't, I, I never want to understand that. But verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, notice Jesus came from God the Father. We, we, we have looked at this as we have gone through the Gospels and as we have gone through this in John. We know that he was the Word of God who, who was there in the beginning. He became flesh. He had, his origin is from outside of eternity Isaiah 57 says, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, that's speaking of Jesus. Daniel speaks of this kingdom when Jesus returns in Daniel 7, 27, that his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. It's never going to end. It never had a beginning. It never had an end. Jesus is king over all. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. He is. And rejoice in that. And notice verse 4 back in our text. Jesus, he rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe the, them with the towel which he was girded. One thing you have to understand is that in this culture, a servant of the host or the host himself, if necessary, would usually do this. When you would come in from a, uh, into a meeting like this, a dinner, the host or a servant would take your sandals off because they didn't have socks, they just had these sandals, and so they would walk all over the rugged terrain, in the mud, in the dirt, in the dust, and so your feet were a mess by the time you got to somebody's house. And they, your servant or the host would take off your shoe, take off your sandal, and they would get a basin of water, and they would, they would put your foot in the water, and they would scrub it with their own hands, and they would scrub it in between your toes and get off all the muck and all the mud and all the dirt and all the stuff on your feet. And they would do that to refresh you. It was a hospitable thing to do. And in, in fact, when, when this didn't happen, it was a breach of hospitality at this time. You remember when David, uh, King David, when he brought Abigail, remember Abigail was the, the wife of Nabal up there in Carmel, and um, Nabal wasn't so courteous to David. But the bottom line in the end of the story, end of the event, uh, David brought, after her husband died, after Nabal died, David brought her unto himself. And it says that um, when Abigail came to David, it says, when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to ask you to become his wife. And then she arose. Notice what she did. She bowed her face to the earth and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And this is a very practical custom. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, um, in verse 40, we find that Jesus going to the house of a Pharisee, his name was Simon, and Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon said, teacher, say it. He said, there was a certain creditor 
who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said, you have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman who was there at Jesus' feet, and she said to Simon, so she's looking at, he's looking at the woman and addressing Simon. And you can see the picture. And he says, I, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. And therefore I say to you, her her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And so this idea of washing the feet, anointing with oil, was a custom. It was expected. It was hospitable. It was the right thing to do. And so Jesus now... Verse 6, it says, He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Do you remember the the layout of the table? Jesus was the the host, and then Peter was on all the way on the other side. He was supposed to be the servant. He was supposed to be the servant. Perhaps Peter was confused by when Jesus did this, because things are out of order here, Jesus. You shouldn't be the one doing this. If there's anyone in this room, it should be the servant. Oh, that's me. Oops. So Peter is thinking to himself, I probably should have, could have, might have, should have done that, Lord. And the Lord doesn't upbraid him. And Jesus answered and said to him, what, am I, what I am doing to you now, you don't understand now, but you will know after this. You will understand what I'm doing. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Jesus would wash the sin of man. And that's really what this is all about. It's about what Jesus was going to do and the humility that Jesus was doing in serving his disciples. And if he, being the master, is willing to serve those who are under him in a sense, how ought they to do the same thing? And so there's a double meaning here. Number one, he would wash them from their sins. Just hours from this moment, he would certainly do that, fulfilling many prophecies. But he's also telling them, hey guys, if me, the master, am willing to take the place of a servant, ought you not to as well? Shouldn't you serve one another? Shouldn't you love one another instead of arguing about who is going to be the greatest? In 1 John it says, But if we walk in the light as he, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Yes, he is going to cleanse. He has cleansed us, and he cleansed them as well. And Simon Peter said to him in verse 9, Lord, not only my feet, but wash everything, my head down to my hands, everything. And this is very typical of Peter. Peter was very impetuous. Peter was a hothead. Peter was one of those guys, he was like a type A personality. He was the one who spoke before he thought. And anybody feel that way? You speak before you think. It's like Tourette's syndrome. You speak and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That happens to me. And I think the older I get in the Lord, the more I'm becoming more aware of what I think before it comes out of my lips. I'm being a little more careful than I used to be because I realize that words are very 
important. With a word, I can bless you, and with a word, I can cut you. We can do that with one another, husbands and wives. With a word, we can encourage, and with one word, with one look, with a nonverbal communication, I can say to you, I am not happy with you. How important are words then if even our nonverbal communication gives us away, right? So important. But even though Peter didn't understand this, he wasn't going to miss out. Whatever this was, he's like, if, I, if, if you don't do this and I don't have any part in you, then just wash me, do a, do a, 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 you know, a super kiss, you know, plus. You know, take me down to super, you know, Delta Sonic and let's, let's do the whole thing. Take me through that thing where they you know, clean on the, white, the, the tires and the rims and all that stuff. I want, want the whole shebang. Lord, just do it all now. <laughs> and I love that about Peter. He was just so sincere. He was sincere in his love and his devotion to Jesus. But he, like many of us, we just don't understand our own selves. We don't even know our own limitations. See, it is possible to be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. And we can also be sincerely unaware and overconfident in who we are and what we do. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Verse 10, and Jesus said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And boy, does that start something. Not all of you are clean. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. See, we are completely clean, and the disciples there, except for one, was completely clean. And they only needed daily to confess their sins. So when Jesus said, you are not clean, he was referring to Judas. Judas was not a believer. He was not a believer. In fact, in John chapter 17, which we're going to get to many weeks from now, it's Jesus said, those, in Jesus speaking to the Father in his prayer, he says, those you gave me I have kept, none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. What scripture? Well, Psalm 41 verse 9. David, even when he wrote this psalm, he was probably thinking of Ahithophel, this, this man who he looked up to, who was a great counselor to David. But David was also prophesying of Judas betraying Jesus because he said in verse 9 of Psalm 41, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And so, verse 12, when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another, one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. That's a great lesson for us, isn't it? We are not greater than Jesus. We're not greater. And the one who is sent is not greater than the one who sent him. But Jesus turns the whole thing upside down, and the whole reasoning of the world is completely backwards. And yet only Christians, only us, only we understand this. And we may understand it, but we may not do it. But happy are we if we know it and then do it, as we will see shortly. But many days 
Prior to this, Jesus spoke to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said this. And again, we're going back in time now. Jesus said this in Matthew 10 verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. And if they have called the master of the house, speaking of Jesus, if they call me Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And then later on, there was an incident where James and John approached Jesus. And you remember what this was in Matthew chapter 20. It says, the mother of Zebedee's sons... Uh, speaking of uh, James and John, they came to him, she came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something of him. And just picture this scene. And Jesus said to her, what do you wish? She's there with Peter and John, or James and John, excuse me. He says, what do you wish? And she said, and I wonder if they put the mother up to this. You know, Did they not have a guts to not say, you know, let's just go to Jesus and talk to him ourselves? They're like, hey, mom, can you go ask Jesus? You know, when we get into the kingdom, can we, have the, can we sit on a, you know, next to him? While he's on his throne, can you, know, can you work that out? Mom, we'll do anything. We'll, we'll make our beds. We'll do all those things that you want. We'll take out the trash from now on. I promise for a year. You know? So she gets, they get her to do it. And Jesus answered. And, and, and she says, grant these my two sons that may sit on your right hand and on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and says, you don't know what you ask. And then going on in the, in the, in the passage, when the others heard of it, they were indignant. They got mad at James and John. And they, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. <laughs> so Jesus here in verse 16 is taking this all into account. He's already, these things have already happened. And so now he gives them that lesson again. And yet, they were still going to argue about it. Because moments, maybe an hour, maybe less from the time that he's speaking to them about this whole idea of being a servant and what I'm doing to you, you don't understand now, it would be just minutes or maybe an hour or less from that time they would argue about who would be the greatest. You know, I like the disciples because I find myself kind of thick and I don't always get it and I can relate. And these were men. See, if it was a, 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 a gaggle of gals around Jesus, they would have gotten it. They would have taken notes. They would have known everything and they would be able to spell it out and, you know, and, and even abbreviate things and, and to share it with others on Facebook. But the guys, like, what? You've talked to us before. And now this and, and, and Jesus... He has to tell them because later on that evening, it says that uh, there was a dispute among them as to which of them, and this is in Luke uh, 22, verse 24, there was a dispute among them about who would be the greatest. It's like, guys, didn't you, did you not hear what I said? Huh? And again, I don't mean to make them sound like, you know, I mean, they're no different than any of us, honestly. But the, but the reality of being a servant of Jesus is to be lower. Are you willing to be lower? Are you willing to serve like Jesus served? Are you willing to show the things that he did? He demonstrated that. So much so that he even demonstrates his greater love has no man than this, than he, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus says, I no longer call you, you know, servants. You're my friends. And didn't he lay down his life for his friends? And also for you and I? 
And if he's willing to do that, is there anything, anything in this world that he wouldn't do? Is there anything in the world that we shouldn't do to help somebody else? I mean, think about that. Is there anything? You know, Jesus spoke in John 15. He said, if the world hates you guys, you know that it hated me before it hated you. This is the cost of discipleship. This is cost of being a servant of Jesus. It's, you're in enemy territory. This world is not going to be kind to you. It's not going to put its arm around you and say, you're, you're, you're such a wonderful guy. You know, you're a great worker. You're a great dad. You're a Christian man. You know, and... Um, so thankful for that, that you're part of our culture, our community. We want to give you the keys to the city. No, you're not going to get any of that. Chances are. In fact, you're probably going to get the other side of it. If the world hates me, Jesus said, it's going to hate you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they are going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you, for, for you, or do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And then he finishes, and this is where we'll finish today. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Underline those two words, the word know, and then if you do them. It's a conditional statement, isn't it? If you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. If you know, blessed are you if you do them. And you and I have been so blessed in this country, in this church, to have Pastor Jeff for so many years, and hopefully I'm you know, uh, following in that same wonderful path of teaching you the Word of God and encouraging you in it. But if all we do is hear things and we become Bible students, but we don't become servants, then all of this hasn't accomplished everything that God wants it to. Because we have to take this. We have to know. We first have to know. It has to get into our minds first. We have to uh, you know, get it into here. But then it ought to do something to us. It's got to. Otherwise, we can be just like anybody else. It has to get up here, but then don't let it sit there for too long. You start acting upon it. Act upon it. Do it. Do what it says. Be faithful when it says to stay away from these things. Stay away from the, the line, you know. Stay away from the fire. But no, we get right to the edge like a little kid and go, is that the edge right there? And kids do that, right? I love children because that they are uh, they show in very physical, poignant ways who we are, but we're more mature and we hide it better. But they are just like the ones to go up and don't touch that stove when the stove is red. Don't touch it, Johnny. And Johnny goes up and goes, "Really? What you gonna do if I touch it? What you gonna do? What you gonna do? What you gonna do? Right? We are that way. <laughs> so, but we have to get it from here." From this, 18 inches down into here, 
and then we act upon it. It must be something we do. It can't just be something that gets stuck here. Otherwise, we become Pharisees. That was the Pharisees' problem. They had a lot of knowledge, and they were revered for their knowledge. Oh, PhD, you're so wonderful. Love you, brother. We'll pay you money to come and speak at our church. We'll give you a $1,000 honorarium because you're so high and mighty and high flutant and you've been to all the right schools and man, you got the little Oxford signia on there and boy, you look great. You even smell great, man. You're just, you're like, oh, I just want to be like him. And God is like, oh, please. <laughs> the guy knows everything up here, but he's done nothing for me. He's done nothing for me. That's the difference, right? We're going to look at a few scriptures and then we'll end. James, Jesus' half-brother, coming to faith after Jesus' resurrection, James tells us in his letter, and we've looked at this before, be doers of the word. That's why Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Know and then do. But be doers of the word, Jesus' half-brother says, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, and he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one is blessed in all that he does. In all what he does. That's the secret to Christianity, is not to just listen and to read and to become fat sheep. No, we got to be fat sheep so we can do. And if we go out and do, we're going to be leaner sheep too because we're doing something. Right? And so we have to do that. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And notice that it's not good enough just to have the knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 8, what does it say? Knowledge puffs up. But love edifies. And what is love? Love is something that is seen, should be something that's seen and not just heard. Oh, I love you. But if there's no reinforcement behind that love, if there's no proof of that love, then it's really not love at all. It's just a bunch of empty words. It's just a bunch of empty words. There is a difference between knowledge and faith leading to obedience. James in chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe that there is one God, you do well. But guess what? Even the demons believe and tremble. The demons know. They have the knowledge. They know that God is real. And they've got all these men in universities all over the country and all over the world that have a lot of knowledge. And just like the devil, they have the knowledge but guess what? The devils deceive them because they don't even believe in God. The devils believe in God. They know he's very real. They know that. But the devil loves to deceive people and say, no, you're, you're much more, you're on a higher plane. You're approaching God-like substance. <laughs> but even the devil and the demons have knowledge, but they rebel and they do not do but we are to know and then to go out and do. James again in chapter 2, verse 14 says this, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. And he says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Our faith ought to be an outlet. 
of what we believe. If we believe it, and we really do believe it, there ought to be a demonstration of it. The demonstration of it doesn't justify us before God. No, we're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. But if I do have a genuine faith, there ought to be something that is something demonstrating that faith, right? It's true. That's why Jesus said, you know these things, but blessed are you if you do them. And so as Jesus is modeling this servanthood, he says, now you go do likewise. And the foot washing ceremony, that's all fine and good, you know. And I mean, people have done that. You don't see it happening in the first century a whole lot, the foot washings and making a big deal out of that. And there's nothing wrong with doing that, of course, but we've got to take it beyond just the foot washing, the very practical. Are you serving God? Are you serving Him? Are you serving others? Are you willing to serve others? Even those that hate you, even those that don't like you. And boy, this has been a, really, a real challenge for me lately. Isn't it easy? Especially now with everything that's going on politically in our country, there are people that I just, I'm like, I shake my head, but you know what? God's challenged me to say, hey, can you still love them? Can you still pray for them? Oh. And he says, Rob, when you are a rascal, when you are a filthy little animal, I had people praying for you. Do you remember that? And that really challenges me then, doesn't it? I'm gonna, so I'm going to leave you with, one, with a, the lyrics to a song. This whole idea of demonstrating something. And it's a, it's a song by Jeff Moore in the distance. It's an old song back in the 80s, I believe it was. But it's called Live to Tell. You've heard me share this lyric before, but I'm going to share it to you again. Because Jesus says... It's great that you know, but you're going to be really blessed if you do. There's got to be a response to, if I say I love, there ought to be something demonstrating my love. And this lyrics to the song go like this. We've all heard it said that actions speak louder than words. And love that is seen means much more than love that's just heard. That's the way it was with our Savior, whose life told the story of love. Someone was watching, someone was listening, dying to know what he knew so well. It helped them believe it if they could just see it. That's why Jesus lived to tell. Now this is my prayer, Lord, help me to live what I say. For so many times I know that my actions betray. Let it be like it was with my Savior. Let my life tell his story of love. Because someone is watching, someone is listening, dying to know what we knew so well. It will help them believe it if in us they see it. That's why we must live to tell. Those are pretty powerful lyrics. And so the real point of this, as Jesus is washing the feet of his guys, is to teach them humility. Are you willing to do the base things? Are you willing to do the things that nobody else is willing to do? And yet... Peter was the one who probably should have been doing that. And yet Peter didn't voluntarily, he didn't willingly stand up and come over with the basin of water and wash everybody's feet, which was customary. Somebody else is going to do it, but not Peter. And Jesus thought to himself, well, I'll do it. I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with doing that. So that really challenges us. Is there anything to 
Anything too dramatic for us that we wouldn't do for someone else? Are we willing to bring a meal to a sick friend? Are we willing to help someone pay for their groceries when they've been hit hard with some you know, calamity and they're, they're struggling? Or are we willing to dig a disabled person's car out of the snow in their driveway if we can and we're able, of course? Are we willing to pick up a prescription for someone at the drugstore for someone who's a shut-in? Are we willing to help a friend or a neighbor clean a septic tank disaster? Are we willing to help a friend or a neighbor move and willingly offer and be servants? Be willing to be a servant in all things. And I pray for myself and I pray for all of you that we would not forget this. And as you read and reread this passage over again, let it challenge you that if God Almighty was willing to do the very basest of things and willing even to go to the cross when we did not deserve it, how much more should we rise to the occasion, especially in this dark hour where everyone is filled with so much hate and anger, for us to turn that around now? Now is our time to shine, church. It really is. People need to see it. They need to see us love. They need to see that we're, we are being controlled by something other than what the world is being controlled. It's easy to be angry and hateful right now. And I know you're resisting it as well as I am. But we have been called to something much greater. And Jesus has given us the strength and his spirit in us to make it possible. So let's stand and let's ask him, Lord, Lord, make us servants. Lord Jesus, make us servants in this world that we live in now, Father. I confess, and I know many of my brothers and sisters here could confess of their anger and their frustration and their disapproval of things that are happening all around us, Lord. We know what's coming, Lord. You've shown us, and thank you for that. And Lord, help us in the midst of, of this storm that we're in, Lord, to love and to show that love, God help me. Lord, perhaps the one person in this room who needs that message preached to them is myself. And you know that that is true. And so, Lord, would you heal me and heal my brothers and sisters and help us to serve you, to be servants of God. And because you were the example, the supreme example, you didn't say, go do this, and never do it yourself. No, you said, go do this because I have done this and I have shown you these things. Lord, help us to be those servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.